Welcome to this edition of Maine the Way Life Could Be, a series in which we look at challenges and opportunities facing Maine in the lifetimes of people alive today. I'm Amy Brown. And I'm Jim Campbell. Today, we'll be focusing on water. Water, obviously, is a very big topic, especially in a coastal state like Maine. As we look ahead, we need to take into account possible changes to seawater, surface freshwater, and groundwater, and their effects on life in the state. That is a lot to cover, and we can't go into great detail, but we can, or at least we hope to, provide an overview of things that we all may need to think about as we look forward to our lives here in Maine. And we will attempt to do that by reporting on existing research about water issues that are already becoming visible and that will certainly be even bigger issues in our future. Later in the program, we will also be talking with people who are in different ways on the front lines of some major current water issues that may be even bigger in our common future. Nikki Sakara lives in Freiburg, Maine, and hears tractor trailers loaded with water extracted from wells in her town passing her house as they haul that water out of state. That experience has motivated her to become knowledgeable about Maine's laws and about corporate large-scale extraction from Maine's groundwater. Ralph Chapman is a material scientist who studied the effects of mineral mining in Maine historically and some of the mineral mining activities being proposed today and tomorrow here in Maine. Those conversations are coming up later in the program. One big issue when it comes to the future of water in Maine is, not surprisingly, climate change. While we'll feel those effects in all parts of our water supply and water systems, most of the attention in Maine has been focused on changes that climate change will bring to the ocean and to the coastline. And there's been lots of information made available on things such as sea level rise. In fact, you may have noticed that local groups in some coastal communities like Belfast and Rockland have put up markers in waterfront areas. The markers depict the highest storm flood water levels to date. Then they add marks indicating projected sea levels by 2050 under the best and worst cases of projected future carbon emissions. Those marker levels are, to say the least, startling. So we'll begin today with a look at changes we can foresee in the ocean due to climate change. Let's begin with the quantity of water we'll be dealing with during the lifetimes of those alive today. All of the information on sea level rise and saltwater quality that we're reporting on today is taken from the following sources. The Maine Climate Council STS Subcommittee Report on Scientific Assessment of Climate Change and Its Effects on Maine. The Maine Climate Future 2020 Update, or Maine Won't Wait, a publication of the Maine Climate Council. We'll put links to all these documents on the page for today's program, and we encourage everyone who's interested to read them. And if you have any questions about any sources, let us know. You can find the archives where you'll find that information at weru.org, and you can reach us at the way life could be at weru.org. Sea level is one obvious cause for concern, and while there are variations and projections of how much sea level rise Maine is likely to experience in the foreseeable future, there's no question that the process is already underway. Conservative projections are for a low rise in sea level by 2050 of 1.15 feet in Portland or 1.35 feet in Eastport. In a higher projection scenario, the rise could be 
2.7 feet by 2050 in Portland, and NOAA has even projected up to a 3.4-foot rise, depending on the severity of climate change and the assumptions in the projection models. In any projection we look at, however, there is clearly going to be a major effect on coastal areas. The Science and Technology Subcommittee mentioned earlier puts it this way, quote, the Science and Technology Subcommittee recommends that the Climate Council consider an approach of committing to manage for a certain higher probability, lower risk scenario, but also preparing to manage for a lower probability, higher risk scenario. STS recommends that the Climate Council consider committing to manage for 1.5 feet of relative sea level rise by 2050 and 3.9 feet of sea level rise by the year 2100. Additionally, the STS recommends that the Climate Council consider preparing to manage for 3.0 feet of relative sea level rise by 2050 and 8.8 feet of sea level rise by the year 2100, end quote. Committing to manage here means getting ready for what is certain to occur. Preparing to manage essentially means having a well-developed plan B, since there's a reasonable likelihood that the more dire situation, even though a lower probability, is still a very considerable threat. Here are some likely effects that towns and private landowners and businesses will have to deal with in the not-too-distant future. One of those is the effect on wastewater treatment facilities, some of which are likely to be flooded in some coastal towns. Quote, a one foot increase in sea level in the future would result in a tenfold increase in coastal flooding in Maine in the next 30 years. End quote. We are likely to see a loss of physical beach area, marsh areas and sand dunes. Quote, a 1.6-foot sea level rise will submerge two-thirds, or 67%, of Maine's coastal sand dunes and reduce the dry beach area by 43%, which may happen by 2050 or earlier, depending on the amount of sea level rise and available natural sand supply, close quote. That is huge. But beaches and dunes are not the only areas that will be affected by projected flooding, businesses and residents will also be more prone to flood damage. Back in 2008, for example, quote, tidal flooding caused by sea level rise already has eroded $70 million worth in coastal real estate value, end quote. By now, in 2022, that number is a lot higher and will continue to rise with bigger and more frequent floods. Not surprisingly, the increase in flooding will probably cause a reduction of affordable insurance for businesses and residents in changed floodplain areas. FEMA flood insurance rates were revamped in 2021 to better recognize current and future flood risk, and some waterfront owners on the East Coast saw a tenfold premium increase. Other increases were not that dramatic, but premiums are clearly rising. We're also facing a loss of or damage to civic infrastructure. Quote, increased coastal flooding threatens an estimated 198 miles of Maine's roadways, end quote. We're also looking at potential changes to waterfront docking and storage areas for commercial fishing activity. Some docks float with tide changes. Piers do not. 
Access to intertidal areas in Maine has also been a hot button issue in the recent past. Those intertidal areas will change with sea level rise. What will those changes mean? Not only will the quantity of seawater change, so will the quality. For example, water temperature in the Gulf of Maine is already rising significantly enough to set new records. And the rate of temperature rise in the Gulf of Maine is currently the fastest in all of the world's oceans. By 2050, optimistically, quote, the low emissions scenario that is consistent with the state's goals to reduce carbon emissions shows Gulf of Maine temperatures leveling off at slightly more than 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above baseline, close quote. Without carbon emissions reductions, warming will be even higher. Changing water temperatures will affect what species, including lobster, will be available for fisheries those changes could have a significant economic impact. Quote, under business as usual emissions, temperatures, even in Downeast Maine, would exceed those in Rhode Island, and Maine would likely lose its most valuable marine resource. End quote. And later, quote, half of the commercial finfish and shellfish species in the Northeast have high or very high climate sensitivity and are expected to be negatively impacted by future warming, end quote. And changes in water acidification will also have a significant effect on what species are available to fisher persons and in what quantities. Quote, the combination of global and local drivers of acidification in the Northeast make New England's shell fisheries, including both its wild harvest fisheries and aquaculture production, and the communities that rely on them, potentially among the most vulnerable to ocean acidification in the United States, close quote. Effects of pollution, particularly of plastics pollution, as a result of dumping from various sources, will continue to have an effect on ocean species as well, and particularly on species lowest on the food chain, therefore impacting the species higher up the food chain that we humans rely on. So this is all a lot that we're telling you right now, but we are, in short, facing an uncertain future in Maine when it comes to climate change caused sea level rise and its effects, especially on coastal areas. The uncertainty at this point focuses not on whether there will be sea level rise, but on how severe it will be. And that will depend on what steps are taken to reduce carbon emissions in the very near future. While these ocean effects are tremendously consequential for coastal areas and the rivers feeding into the ocean, fresh surface water and groundwater issues will affect all the state, and that's where we'll focus during the rest of today's program. Let's take a look at a series of questions that we already know we will be facing in the near future based on what is happening today in Maine. First, a couple of quick definitions so we're precise in what we're talking about. According to Maine's statute, quote, fresh surface waters means all waters of the state other than estuarine and marine waters and groundwater. Groundwater means all the waters found beneath the surface of the earth, which are contained within or under this state or any portion thereof, except such waters as are confined and retained completely upon the property of one person and do not drain into or connect with any other waters of the state, end quote. With those definitions under our belt, let's look at a series of questions that arise about the future of fresh water in Maine. 
what effect will climate change have on the amount of fresh water available in the future and how and when that water will be available to us? What are the potential concerns about the quality or purity of the groundwater? Who will have access to fresh water, especially groundwater, and under what conditions? Let's take a look at each question in turn. Let's start with precipitation availability, rain and snow. What effect will climate change have on the amount of water available in the future and how that water comes to us? On a yearly basis, precipitation has increased in Maine by about six inches, or over 15%, since 1895 when accurate records began to be collected. However, the type of precipitation has changed. More rain, less snow. Annual snowfall has decreased by 20% over the same period, and that change happened mostly in the last 50 years and is still accelerating. I can vouch for the changes in the last 50 years here in Maine in the snowfall. And one challenge will be in the predictability of precipitation, which is projected to vary significantly over the course of the year. For one thing, there will probably be an increased number of rain events. Farmington, for example, has a precipitation measuring station with a long record of data. And Farmington now experiences 10 to 15 more precipitation events a year than during the previous century. And there will likely be an increased number of severe storm events. Again, using Farmington as an example, while severe storm events, those measuring three or four inches of rain, are still the minority of storm events, three-inch rainfall events are three and a half times more likely, and four-inch events are three times more likely today than when rain record collection began. Locations along the coast are seeing an even greater increase in storm precipitation intensity, particularly over the last two decades. And those storms, especially the severe ones, are having effects, big ones. Quote, increased precipitation means increased volume of runoff to local streams, rivers, and ultimately the Gulf of Maine. Those higher flows and floods can impact drinking water and damage roads, bridges, and properties. Storms often include strong winds, such as the October 2017 event that was the worst windstorm in Maine's history. More than half a million people lost electricity due to damaged power lines. It cost CMP, Central Maine Power Company, $69 million, end quote. Despite the increases in precipitation events, an increase in drought events is also possible, affecting agriculture and groundwater table levels. In a state with as many rural wells as Maine, a drop in groundwater table is a very serious problem for homes and for farmers. And at this point, increased drought occurrence is difficult to predict, but likely, despite the increase in precipitation, because of the precipitation lack of predictability. And because of temperatures rising, quote, as the climate warms, future droughts and periods of limited moisture are likely to worsen with higher temperatures, favoring increased drying. For farmers, dry conditions can cause hay and other forage crops to mature earlier, slow pasture regrowth, increase rodent numbers, and delay reproduction of insect pests, in turn, changing monitoring and spray schedules. Drought, along with the problems from too much rain, are the leading causes of federal taxpayer-subsidized crop insurance claims, costing the nation $74 billion between 2000 and 2016, end quote. 
while there may be an increase in precipitation, taking advantage of that precipitation will be more difficult as the storage of precipitation is expected to change over the year with a much smaller snowpack, earlier melt, and increased runoff in increasingly severe storms. And in addition to the general impact of these changes, there will probably be impacts to tourism, although projections of that impact are not clear at this point. Warmer weather tourism activities may well generate increases in revenue. Cold weather-based activities will likely decrease in revenue, especially those depending on snowfall and snowpack. And wildlife-related activities may change as species relocate. So with a potential increase in precipitation, changes in how it reaches us in predictable ways, and paradoxically, the likelihood of significant droughts, how will we change the way we manage the collection and distribution of freshwater in the not-too-distant future? We face some big questions as we think about this issue, or really a set of questions, because there are many different uses of water in Maine. Obviously, use for private households is top of mind for many. We have existing use levels, of course, but we also face the prospect of increased population. We recently saw that happen with people looking for a safer place to be during COVID. And we also are beginning to experience an influx of what realtors and town officials define as climate change refugees. What impact will that have on water management and accessibility? We'll have more to say about those issues in a future program on Maine's demographics. In addition to household use, water is a key resource in commercial agriculture and in local garden usage. We discussed some of those issues on a past program, which is available, as are all the programs in the Maine The Way Life Could Be series, in the local public affairs archives at www.weru.org. There are also issues of stormwater damage to local civic infrastructure like roads and dams, something we discussed in the first program in this series. And there are questions about large amounts of water use by industry for traditional uses such as manufacturing and for industries based on extracting large amounts of water, such as for bottled water exportation, already a large issue, and proposals to extract significant amounts of minerals in several areas in Maine. Let's turn to those two issues now, beginning with extracting water for bottled water export. You're listening to Maine, The Way Life Could Be on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. And I'm Jim Campbell. Before we begin our conversation with Nikki Sakara, there is some background on Maine's laws concerning water that are critical to understanding the conversations we're about to hear. Maine is one of three states still using what is called the absolute dominion rule with regard to groundwater rights. It basically says that a landowner essentially owns the water below the land just as much as they own the land itself. In 1987, to mitigate the take as much as you want rule, Maine law added a cause of action. This gives people whose wells are made unusable for regular household use a right to sue because of drawdown from other non-domestic water uses. However, the only remedy that's available under the law is to require whoever has caused the lack of water in the person's well to restore a level of water sufficient for the needs of a one-family home. It's not surprising that this type of legal framework has given rise to concerns and tensions about the extraction of large amounts of groundwater for commercial exportation as bottled water. 
Nikki Sakara lives in Freiburg, Maine, site of one of Poland Springs major wells, and she has become concerned about the effects of drawing hundreds of thousands of gallons of Maine groundwater from several different locations around the state, about local control over water rights, and about water use. We spoke with her recently about those concerns. Here are some of her comments. I originally got involved with the water privatization of our groundwater because their trucks roll by my house 24 hours a day and seven days a week here in Freiburg, Maine. My son, who was young at the time, we started doing investigating locally into the background story. The more questions we got answered, it seemed like the more questions we had. So what in our legal infrastructure allows this to happen, that a foreign corporation can come in and obtain a U.S. precedent-setting contract for our groundwater for a length of 45 years. We seem to be willing to give up that level of local control over our groundwater for a a really long period of time, which is really concerning uh, with the changes that we're seeing in our climate It's like we're giving up our level of an ability to hold accountability with large corporations when we um, lock in through contracts for them to, to gain access to our most precious resources for such a long period of time. That's part of the work that I've been trying to do is, you know, water connects with so many different environmental issues, political issues, and historical issues within the state of Maine. The financial of water is the final frontier of the commodification of all life. Uh, We know the story of the commodification of Maine's forest and how that ties in with the history of colonization in the state of Maine. Now we have this new wave of colonization where they want to come and gain access and control over water to commodify that. On March 7th, 2020 was the first time in human history where water futures are traded on Wall Street. And, you know, what do long-term contracts in the state of Maine with private entities for the control over our water? And what does that mean for Maine's future and our relationship to our water resources that have sustained life here and in our territory since time immemorial? In our town, we have a water company that's privately owned. So most municipalities in the state of Maine run their own water infrastructure. Freiburg is one of a number of growing communities across the state that are privatizing their water sources. So the water company here has been here since the late 1800s, and it's been owned by local families. We also have this other phenomenon in the state of Maine where Maine Water Company, who's a subsidiary of Connecticut Water Company, they just went through a billions-dollar merger with San Jose Water out of California, which makes them the third largest private water utility in the United States. So they're going into cash-strapped communities that are struggling maintaining their water, local water infrastructure and kind of giving them a way out into buying the municipal water system. I believe they own maybe 22 water systems in the state of Maine now, and they're looking to buy more. They've expressed interest into buying the Freiburg Water Company outright. Currently, they're managing the system, but they don't own it. 
So this is another problem that's really growing quickly in our state that nobody seems to be really paying attention to. Much of Europe had privatized a lot of their water systems, and they are still working on reversing that because when you're running a for-profit model for our water, the service quality decreases, quantity can decrease based on the how much you're charging for the water. It can marginalize poor populations very quickly. There's many reasons why privatization isn't a good idea in running water systems on a for-profit model. So it makes it really easy for two private entities to enter into a contract to gain access to Maine's water sources. The public really didn't have much of an input because it's between two private entities. And you know we had to fight to get a public hearing in our town over this contract. And at the end of the day, the Maine Public Utilities Commission, as we learned, they don't, it's not within their purview to consider environmental impacts and engaging in such contracts. You know, just like Poland Spring, you have to look at who owns them. Um, you know, for a long time it was Nestle, but just recently they sold to a pair of private equity firms their charge is to make the brand perform better. So cutting costs is one thing. I know they had many layoffs a number of months ago at their facilities. Um, you know, it's hard to know exactly what they're doing internally to increase their revenue stream. But there was just in the newspaper three weeks ago, I think, that they're looking to build a fourth bottling plant and they're looking at Rumford now. Right. So, in the article about the layoffs, they said that the demand was continuing to increase, that they didn't see uh, demand decreasing. So has that changed minds in the area down there in southern western Maine about Poland Spring? A lot of these companies, when they come into an area, the way they sell big projects or justify them if anybody's opposing them is by talking about the number of jobs they provide. Now that Nestle sold off the Poland Spring and some of the other divisions and laid off a bunch of, and the new company laid off a bunch of workers, have there been more people joining the cause about being concerned about the privatization of the water supply down there? What people don't realize is this is one of the most highly automated industries on the planet. Uh, it doesn't require many people. For instance, in Hollis, Maine, they crank out over 250,000 cases of 24 bottles of Poland Springs per day. That's just at one site alone. And now they're going to build another facility, uh, which will be even more state of the art. And I'm sure employ fewer <laughs> local people as they look to streamline their production and make it more cost effective. The trucking jobs, you know, they do employ truckers not through their company, but they contract with um, RC Moore, Hart Trucking. I see their trucks on the road. But I recall maybe a year ago seeing a news report that the Maine State Police had pulled over a number of trucks hauling Poland Springs, and it was a Rhode Island company. Uh, because they hadn't been paying their tolls and they had racked up a bill to the tune of about $40,000. So, you know, they do have other out-of-state employee. I'm sure they, they include those in the main jobs, but, you know, there are other people that they contract under that umbrella that aren't bringing jobs locally. And those numbers, a lot of them are seasonal. They have what they call the 100 days of summer where their sales definitely go up during the 100 
months. And so, you know, there are a number of seasonal employees as well. Um, not all of those are full-time jobs. They do have to obtain permits for pumping. Um, in the case of Denmark, Maine, the town issues them a permit and every five years they have to go back and get their permit renewed. And the, the, their takings are based on some science, proprietary science, you know, will have not a negative impact on the local environment. However, Long Pond, if you go and observe that pond nearby where the extraction's taking place, residents, their docks didn't even go into the water last year. I mean, their docks were out, but it didn't even reach the water. So there's definitely a problem that surface waters are being impacted there. And in Freiburg, we have two surface ponds that the water markers that they would use to take data on the water levels, they haven't even been in the water for a few years now. Have people commented, people who are not uh, on the city water system, who have their own wells, have there been comments at, at these kinds of hearings that you know of, of people saying, my well is going dry more often, or I'm having more trouble getting enough flow? Is there any sort of assertion that the groundwater level is being affected by this large amount of extraction. There have been many complaints over the years, but again, trying to pin that to Nestle's withdrawals when we've also been in drought has been a near impossibility because to afford the science would mean coming up with hundreds of thousands of dollars to do an aquifer study that would tell the complete story to refute Nestle's claims, again, um, is a tough call. And I, I know I've spoken to, to landowners who wells have gone dry, but it's been such a contentious issue. A lot of people don't choose to lodge complaints based on that. And of course, a lot there's a lot of people that have access to privilege and can afford to drill deeper wells. And that's what they end up doing. The depletion of our aquifers not being allowed to come back up to what normal levels would be over long periods of time, that's what we need to examine. And that's what we don't understand is how can the continued slow depletion of our aquifer levels, how can that exacerbate the effects of climate change on our forests around here, flora and fauna in general? And so those questions aren't really being examined right now. You used the term a couple of times, our water commons. Mm -hmm. Does, in fact, Maine law have anything referring to water commons? Well, we have on our books and our, our current uh, law that we rely on here in the state of Maine is called absolute capture. I would say is not congruent with respecting our water commons. What does that mean, absolute capture? Yeah, absolute capture or absolute dominion is if, if you own the land, okay. you own access and the rights to the water underneath that land. But water doesn't adhere to political boundaries. And the spirit of that law is such that you wouldn't take so much water to impact your neighbors. But we don't really have legal infrastructure to really su to support that strongly. Or any scientific okay. infrastructure to prove whether or not it's happening. Yes, right. It'd be hard yes, to prove. So. Yeah, so we had heard the absolute dominion rule, and that 
what is it, three or four states that have that, Jim, when you were researching that? Yeah, it was a is law that, that's been on the books since the 1800s. And Maine, Texas, and Indiana are the last three states that still have that law on the books. There's been many moves at the state level to put water under a public trust. But it seems like every time that that fight comes up around, you get a lot of pushback from land rights folks because nobody wants to give the state power to limit what you can do on your own property. So when property rights come into play, it's not only the large corporations that are coming out to protect their privatized interest, you have the individual landowner saying that the state shouldn't have a right to tell me what I can and can't do on my own property. So just to be clear to listeners, what we're talking about with this absolute dominion rule or absolute capture that Maine, Texas, and Indiana have, mm-hmm. what it says is groundwater that's on land, property that one owns, uh, mm-hmm. you can do whatever you want with, and sort of you're on your own best behavior in terms of don't pollute it or do anything that would affect the people downstream. But the people downstream would have to prove that you were doing that. They'd have to have the capacity to do that. So and that is why they are able to just extract basically as much as as they want. You know, you do have to get a permit and it'd be good to define is what beneficial use is at the state level. So what is beneficial use? Um, Is that part of this absolute dominion rule? It's not defined clearly. Of course, Nestle would define that taking like from... uh, from our aquifer right here is 603,000 gallons per day. With a finite amount of potable water and a rule that allows people to do whatever they want with the groundwater in areas that they own, how do we prevent Maine from becoming a giant water factory and exporter? Right. Um, I mean, we have exports, but we have to recognize what that water war looks like. I would say the water wars are here in Maine right now, and it definitely looks like, you know, Poland Spring and who's behind that brand. It also looks like right now is industrial aquaculture for access to water. Right. And I think the scale in which you're talking is the problem. I'm not against aquaculture on a sustainable level, but what they're proposing for this state and all along the Penobscot right now, that's what these water wars in Maine look like. You know, they want to put in fish factories that are illegal in other regions for very good reasons for the environmental impact. But Maine, we're willing to give this precious, precious resource up to centralize our food systems yet again, when we know that is not the sustainable way forward. Most importantly, what we can do to ensure that we do the best by our state and and by, you know, the seven generations ahead of us, nobody's thinking about, we're looking at turning a quick buck today and selling them out, literally, is local ordinances. We do have home rule authority And there's been a handful of successful local water ordinances that you can put into place to limit such activity. Because if you control the water, you can control all life in general, right? If you can control the food, you can control the local people. But we need to to think and, and expand upon, you know, the food sovereignty bill that was just, you know, put into our constitution now. We have the constitutional right to food. But what does that mean without the right to water? We tried to include that in the original bill, 
but the water piece was cut out very quickly by industry and the agricultural committee. And it seemed clear that it would never pass as one package. As we just heard from Nikki Sakara, extracting water for use as bottled water to be exported from the state is a big issue today and probably will be in the future as the planet warms and water access becomes a critical issue in other parts of the country as it has become in California today. There's another type of extraction that requires huge amounts of water, not for the sake of the water itself, but for the sake of extracting minerals from the ground. Mining has a significant effect, almost always detrimental, on water quality in areas where mines are located. That's one reason why voters in Pembroke, supported by the Passamaquoddy tribe at Sabayak, recently decided not to allow mining in their town, one location in which new mines have been proposed in Maine. It is likely there will be more cases in the future as deposits of minerals become more profitable to mine. You're listening to Maine, the way life could be on WERU-FM. I'm Jim Campbell. And I'm Amy Brown. This month, we're looking at some of the water-related issues Mainers are facing in the near and not-too-distant future. Maine has had plenty of experience with detrimental effects of mines on water quality, particularly in Hancock County, within the lifetimes of many alive today. Ralph Chapman is a materials scientist and a former state legislator who lived near one of those mines and looked carefully on how its operation affected nearby water quality. And he has followed recent proposals for new mines. He also co-sponsored bills during his time in the legislature, which would, in his opinion, improve mining laws in Maine. We spoke with him about proposed mineral mines in Maine and how groundwater quality might be affected. One of the things that has re-arisen, let's say, in Maine is the question of mineral extraction of one sort or another, ranging from traditional things such as silver, which was the case up in Washington County, or minerals that are very valuable now, such as lithium in the digital age. What kind of needs for water does mining have? And where does that water often come from? And what is the situation with that water after it has been used for whatever happens in mining? The primary ore deposits in Maine are the volcanogenic massive sulfides. These are uh, formed from underwater volcanoes uh, hundreds of millions of years ago. And uh, they have a variety of metals in them, uh, including gold and silver and, and lead and copper and zinc. The commercial mines in Maine in the last century were primarily extracting the copper and the zinc. Uh, that the, both of those are in Hancock County, one in Blue Hill, one in Brooksville. Mining in Maine, of course, started back in the uh, seven, uh, 1800s, the 1870s. And there were hundreds of mines, but very small. And 99% of them went bust within a year or two uh, because they were really investor scams. But back to the water question. Water is used in the processing of the crushed ore. The ore is the rock that contains the metallic minerals, and that's crushed up into a fine powder. And that powder is mixed with water and chemicals to separate the metallic portion of the minerals from the non-metallic portion of the minerals in a in a general industrial process called beneficiation. Use is copious amounts of water. 
because the rock that is being processed ends up being only about a third of the, there's about a one third solids content to the slurry that's made from the water and the rock. For every ton of rock that's brought out and crushed up, that's only one third of the content of the slurry that's made with the water that's used as the separator mechanisms. Then chemicals are added to the water and a variety of chemicals, uh, notably cyanide for some of the metals and toxic chemicals. And that causes a chemical reaction, which causes the metallic portion of the crushed up metallic mineral to float. And that's skimmed off the surface. And that's the way of separating the more metal-rich portions of the of the ore from the non-metallic-rich portions of the ore, which become the tailings, which is one of the waste products of mining, is the spent slurry that is no longer has a lot of metal in it. So the tailings then become a serious problem because they've been historically dumped into ponds or lakes or estuaries in a in a pond a, a built pond held back by some kind of a dam structure and dam failures at tailing storage facilities has been a major problem in the last half century in the mining industry worldwide that represents one of the serious environmental hazards of of mining is what to do with the tailings they in essence a mining area becomes a sacrifice zone because the tailings are toxic and they leach toxic materials into the ground. Now, a, a modern day tailings facility would, would line a pit or a artificial lake with an impermeable membrane in order to try to keep the toxic aqueous solution slurry from seeping into the groundwater. Uh, although it's not clear how long those impermeable membranes last. It's expected that they might last a few hundred years. And that's going to be a large area lake and it rains and it snows and precipitation goes into it and adds more water to it to make it overflow or put more pressure on the dam structure. Historically, of course, they weren't lined. So we have daily contamination and surface waters and groundwaters in Brooksville and in Blue Hill from the legacy mines uh, that operated in the 1960s and 70s. There is an effort on the part of the industry to recycle some of the water. I, I don't know what the filtration mechanisms are that the industry uses for trying to recycle the process water and, and keeping the contaminated water out of the environment is a very long-term process, and there is no long-term accountability for the industry. Our regulatory structure is built on the wrong framework for regulating the mining industry. There, there's, we have a regulatory structure. It's called uh, punish non-compliance, like a speed limit on a, on a highway. You drive faster than the speed limit, and you get stopped, and you get fined for not complying with rules. That type of regulatory framework does not work for certain industries, including the mining industry. It doesn't work for the chemical manufacturing industry. It does not work for the nuclear-powered electric generating industry. Those industries, all three of those are examples of industries that can do far more damage than they can afford by not complying. And so a fine for not complying is a 
either a minor cost of doing business or it becomes extraneous because they've been bankrupted by the damage they've already done. We have the wrong regulatory framework for regulating mining in the state of Maine, and um, that's just the beginning of our mining regulation problems. Uh, the, The actual regulations have a serious technical flaws and policy flaws. There have been mining operations started one or 2,000 years ago that produced an acid mine drainage that are still producing an acid mine drainage today. The types of problems that mining these sulfide mines create due to exposing the sulfides that have been uh, kept away from water and air for uh, hundreds of millions of years and then being exposed Uh, that chemical reaction is initiated by the mining operation. And so once it gets started, it just continues on. Uh, Stopping the mining operation, which is one of the regulatory schemes as well, you're out of compliance, so we pull your permit, so you have to stop mining, doesn't stop the pollution. And this was one of the major errors of the current mining regulations in Maine, which specifically allows groundwater contamination. When I asked a principal author of the legislation, what are you going to do when the contaminated water goes beyond the 100-foot limit that it's supposed to be limited to? He says, well, then we shut it down. And I said, shut what down? And he said, well, we shut down the entire operation. And I pointed out that the mines in Blue Hill and Brooksville were shut down now half a century ago, and they continue on a daily basis to pollute the waters of the state. So the problem isn't that the mining causes the the, the pollution, it's the mining initiates the pollution, which then carries on. I've strongly advocated for mining regulations that would take into account what I'll call the entire geological life cycle of the mining operation. But uh, my, my suggestions were rejected by the legislature, as you know. Can you tell us about what's happening or what just happened up in Pembroke? You were there when there was a public meeting uh, and the residents in Pembroke are now trying to reach out to neighboring towns to talk to them about uh, the mining issue because they may be looked at next by the mining company that was eyeing Pembroke. What is that story? The last set of regulations to pass the legislature in 2017 went into effect 90 days after the legislature adjourned. Before that 90-day period was up and before the regulations actually went into effect, a mining company, a foreign mining company, announced its intention to mine a deposit, Pickett Mountain, which is a few miles east of the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. And in fact, they spent, I don't remember, I think it was $8 million on purchasing Pickett Mountain for that purpose. And they said at the time that the new legislation provided them the opportunity to look into a commercial mining operation in Maine for the first time in more than 45 years. I suspect that was a message of disappointment to the authors of the legislation. The company withdrew its application to mine Pickett Mountain probably about an hour before it would have been rejected by the Land Use Planning Commission. 
on the staff recommendation. The staff was recommending denial of the application on account of it being incomplete, uh, non-responsive to the questions of the staff. And so by pulling it before it was denied, the process hasn't actually formally begun because the application was withdrawn before it was denied. At the same time, they expressed interest in in, uh, revisiting uh, an ore deposit near Cobscook Bay in, in the town of Pembroke. And they expressed interest there and have been doing exploratory drilling into that deposit and also overflights of aircraft doing uh, measurements of uh, the gravitational field and magnetic field anomalies and so forth to identify where the ore deposit is and what shape and size it might be, et cetera. It turns out that the regulations in Maine don't require a permit to do exploratory drilling. So uh, there's no permit requirement. The folks in Pembroke quickly started to learn about what mining might mean for their community. And uh, a number of people in Pembroke then uh, got together. There is an environmentally active group that's been in the Pembroke area for many years, actually dealing with uh, some marine issues. Cobscook Bay is a fascinating ecological uh, location, and uh, they had been concerned about uh, rockweed harvesting problems. And that group, along with some other folks that were doing some farming in the area, decided that uh, they should find out what this is about and educate themselves. And that led to the development of a draft ordinance, which uh, they got uh, by signature petition, got put before the town town at a special town meeting. That town meeting uh, took place at the beginning of this month. The voters voted to adopt the ordinance, and the ordinance restricts industrial-scale mining. It doesn't restrict mining completely, but there's a, a limitation to the size of a mining operation that can happen in their town. Mining, in this case, being metallic mining. They did not want to interfere with sand, gravel, quarry, peat, and so forth. So it, it's only metallic mineral mining at an industrial-scale level that was banned by their local ordinance. And yes, they are attempting to help other towns in the area, perhaps adopt similar types of ordinances. I recall a little over a dozen years ago, the beginning of an effort dealing with what's now called food sovereignty, the ability for local farmers to sell to local customers and and so forth. The food sovereignty movement worked by establishing local ordinances. Uh, They started on the Blue Hill Peninsula and the towns of Cedric, uh, Penobscot, and Blue Hill were the first three towns to adopt those local food ordinances. And then it spread. And at the same time, there was continuing legislation initiatives in the state legislature, but uh, that didn't go anywhere until about 40 or 45 towns around the state had adopted these local food regulation uh, ordinances, and then the state adopted it statewide. And then just uh, just in the past year, uh, a, a right to food was uh, put into the constitution. So I'm personally impressed by the ability of 
uh, local citizens by citizen petition and the local ordinance process to build a, a movement, in, in that case, local food from ordinances in a local town to not only statewide laws, but uh, statewide constitutional change. I'm very impressed with that. I think that provides a template for environmentalists concerned about water quality and, and the threat that the mining industry poses to water quality to do similar sorts of things. If enough Local ordinances are passed uh, that helps get the attention of the legislature uh, to consider things on a statewide basis. What can you tell us about the uh, lithium deposit that was discovered in Western Maine? It's been estimated that if it were able to be mined, that that might be about one and a half billion dollars worth of lithium. And it's also been said that it would be difficult to mine that, but with it being worth $1.5 billion, it seems like somebody will probably try to find out, find a way. First off, be careful in just quoting a dollar figure of the minerals in the ground. Mm -hmm. You might recall that a foreign mining company wanted to mine Bald Mountain in Aroostook County for the gold. There's a lot of gold there. It's just not mineable by present-day technology. I don't know what the number dollar value was. It I thought it was also in the billion with a B range. All you have to do is take a large enough section of the Earth's crust, and you will have uh, a very high numbers of dollars worth of valuable stuff that's there. That doesn't mean that it's extractable in either an economic way or, and certainly may not be extractable in an environmentally acceptable way. Back to the question of lithium, uh, the lithium deposits around the world, they come in several different types. There are the brines, the lithium dissolved in salt water, and that's a relatively easy extractable method. The lithium in Maine is in what's called hard rock material. There's not a lot of experience in mining lithium from hard rock because most of the lithium deposits elsewhere in the world are in, in clays more than hard rock. This brings up, however, a, a real interesting point, which is we're dealing with relatively new technology. And how do you regulate possible consequences of problems that are particular to that type of deposit. And it seems to me, in contrast to the punished noncompliance regulatory structure that we have for mining, I've been advocating for what I call a continuing independent scientific expert review panel process. I base that on the example given by the nuclear power industry, in which if you're a nuclear power plant owner and you want to do something to your plant, you, you get permission to do that through a regulatory process that involves independent scientific experts. Now, I have to take a moment here to explain what a scientific expert is, which is that a scientific expert is a scientist who has been judged by other scientists working in the same field to have contributed to that field of science. It's a peer review process. It's a process in which other science experts agree that the work you have done is is worthy work, and therefore you are then able to consider yourself a scientific expert. Science is not pro or anti anything. 
especially if you have a panel of scientists, you get around the problem of the biases of a single scientist. It would seem to me that if we had a regulatory structure for metal mining, which, by the way, includes the lithium, that involved uh, this continuing uh, independent scientific expert review panel, then we could be assured that as the science developed, we would be aware of what the pros and cons were, of what the uh, management needs were to control the way in which it's mined. I give an example that's current to the sulfide mining. Uh, our current regulations require dry stack tailings which is a new technology, and a lot of work has been done since the regulations were, were made. The regulations just say all the tailings have to be dry stacked, but it doesn't actually define what a dry stack tailing is. And uh, that merely opens the door to litigation, and it opens the door to not actually accomplishing the goal for which the, it was put into the regulation. If one had scientific panels involved in the implementation of a regulatory structure, that is to say, on board, monitoring how things are going, then as new information is developed, it can be incorporated in the processes that are regulating the industry. That was Ralph Chapman, a materials scientist and former state legislator, with some observations about the effects that mining has had on water quality in the past and could have in the future here in Maine. As we said at the beginning of this program, water is a huge topic and one that's key to all of our survival, whether we walk on two legs or four, whether we swim or fly. Changes in the type, timing, and extent of precipitation potential increased demand for access to groundwater by a range of users, and the legal and economic factors affecting ownership and access to fresh water will continue to be issues of paramount importance as we move into the future here in Maine, as will the effects of sea level rise due to climate change. We've really only provided a high-level overview of some of the issues today and how they may affect us tomorrow. And we encourage everyone to look at the resources that will be placed on the webpage for today's program in the archives section at www.weru.org. Our thanks to the Maine Arts Commission for supporting this series. The next program in this Maine, The Way Life Could Be series will air on Tuesday, July 5th at 4 p.m. We'll be looking at some of the implications of Maine's demographic makeup now and in the future. We hope that you'll join us then. I'm Jim Campbell. And I'm Amy Brown. Remember, our email address, if you'd like to comment or make suggestions, is the way life could be at weru.org. We also have a place for you to record comments. So if you have some thoughts about how Maine's demographic makeup is changing, we may include your comments on future programs. So email them to us or go to the website weru.org and you just click on record and you can record your message right there. Thanks for listening and keep it tuned here to WERU-FM.